they landed us at Baghdad. Helicopter took off, got blown out of the sky, all dead. Fuck. Um, you know those left, yeah. left and right moments. You think, you know, how many times had I turned left, could it have gone south, and I wouldn't be here today? He said to me, Steve, I'm just an ordinary man doing extraordinary things, <laughs> and I absolutely <laughs> cracked up laughing at it. Um, but the more I thought about it and broke it down, it's 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 kind of like true. We were the only guys that had all the high-powered weapons. Uh, all the sniper rivals and all the gear to be able to go and get rid of the, a problem crocodile. Wanted to be a dad in my kids' life, in, in their lives. So made that made that sacrifice to, to just to, just to be with them. Um, and yeah, and so transition away. But I was lost. I was really, really lost. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra. And of course, you can call me Brad. Really blessed to be here, as I always am, and incredibly honoured to share the story of today's guest. I had the privilege of meeting this man um, probably around a month ago, of which you'll hear the origin stories of, of our first meeting here on the show today as the episode begins. And... I just wanted to come here in post-production to do the introduction for one reason. Um, as you know, I normally roll my intros freestyle from the top, but I really had no idea where today's episode would go. As you'll hear, this man has so many directions he could have taken today's episode. He's just such an extraordinary human being. Steve Budgen is a former member of the Tactical Operations Unit of the Police Force. He spent many years as a member of the Australian Federal Police Force as well in a Special Operations Unit, um, partaking in missions throughout um, the stint of his career, but also all around the world. Missions of high importance and high secrecy, um, of which some he was able to tell stories of here today, but not all. He spent many years developing and leading teams. He has experience as a father and a husband. He's just an incredible human being and I'm so blessed to have shared his story here on the show and I know that everyone listening in or watching this will take so much from Steve's journey. So without further ado, um, we'll let this episode begin and I hope you guys love it as much as I enjoyed being the host. G'day, g'day. Here with this incredible gentleman, Steve Budgen and... I, I want to dive into, before I, I hand it over to Steve to share his story, I want to dive into our origin story, which is one of my favorite things to do on every episode. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at the long-awaited Gang of Youths concert in Sydney at Kudos Bank Arena. I'm pretty sure it's still Kudos Bank. I think it was Kudos, yeah. 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 And I was sitting down with a mate, Joey Dixon, and waiting for the show to start. We watched the opening act and there was a little 30-minute intermission and... As I'm sitting there, uh, a couple started to walk through and, and found our row and they were sitting next to us. And as they budged past, I thought, God, I know their faces. Um, and it was Steve Budgen. And we started to have a conversation being Wollongong locals and recognizing each other from this very small city. Um, that is the Illawarra. I and don't even think we got that far. I think we got, I turned the corner and went up to the stairs and, I, and you're looking at me and I'm looking at you and I'm thinking... <laughs> This guy looks familiar. And Mate, was, and it was just that. It. And that, like, 
we laughed about it at the time because it, it is such a small world, especially here in Wollongong, but to bump into each other at a Gang of Years concert, have a half an hour conversation and we found ourselves sharing life stories um, pretty much straight away. Yeah, the concert was getting in the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we, we belted out a few tunes for the next two yeah, hours and yeah. and went on our ways. And But we'd exchanged info and we caught up for lunch probably a week or two ago now yeah. at Headlands and... Fuck, we just sat there for three and a half hours just sharing Could stories. Have kept going. And, yeah. Mate, it just it felt so effortless to talk to you. And I guess for the, the listeners and the viewers, there was something about your story that I felt really connected to, this sense of um, just just will to never give up, to have full self-belief in what you could achieve. And, you know, aside from all of those amazing principles that people are gonna get from today's episode, there is just such a story to be told. Like your life has been incredible, mate. And it's obviously been testing, but it's rich with experience and I'm excited to dive into that. So thank you for being on the show. No, thanks for having me in. It's a great pleasure to be here, mate. Like um, I think I'll keep singing your praises. I think yeah, the honour's all mine because what you've achieved, um, I think you're an inspiration. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sucking from you as much as yeah. you're getting whatever you get out of me. So no, it's great to, great to be here and um, have a chat. I'd be interested to start with almost the first question, a question that could be answered in so many ways, but how would you describe yourself? <laughs> Do you know what? I was actually thinking about this on the way here um, when I was doing the special operations stuff for years and years in New South Wales. Um, there was a real larger-than-life character that, that we worked with. Carl, if you're out there listening, hope all's well, mate. I still think of you and I still think of this story. Um, we're on the top of the Sydney Police Centre um, doing some rappelling, like jumping off the side of the yeah. building and roping down for all the gear and everything. And um, uh, he said to me, Steve, I'm just an ordinary man doing extraordinary things. <laughs> and I absolutely <laughs> cracked up laughing at it. Um, but the more I thought about it and broke it down, it's, it's, it's kind of like true. We're all just ordinary guys, and um, but we've had... Um, been blessed with amazing opportunities, and um, and I'm no different to that really. So um, it's it's that guy in your street that you pass, you just never know their story. And mm. um, uh, we we're talking about before um, about yeah, a potential definitely. project that might be coming up within the shadows, and it's just it's just like that. It's, it's people. That, um, everyone's got a story, and I'm just one of those guys, I guess. Definitely, and I guess I, that makes a lot of sense hearing you say that because you know, to sing your praises quickly. One thing that you always say to me, being as humble as you are, is, you know, I can't believe I'm here on the show after Ziggy Albert's like, how do I follow suit? Exactly. But mate, I I had the privilege of obviously getting to know you at Gang of You, sitting down with you at lunch and you were kind enough to send me like an incredible summary of, you know, your life thus far over email, which I read this morning, just as a little refresh on sort of like I guess the chapters of the journey and yeah, the, sure. the way that it all unfolded. And mate, I just, I sat there and I read the story and I sent you that text after to saying in caps, <laughs> this has to become a book or this has to become some form of storytelling project because yeah. to me, it's so far out of my world and it's, it's just, there's so much depth to it. There's so much to learn from it. There's so much that I sat there reading and just smiling about <laughs> and laughing about because I'm like, these stories are just, they're fucking insane to be like, it's the simplest way to put it. And yeah. so I'm just so, so excited to dive into all of that. But as any story does, it starts with um, youth, childhood, yeah, um, the beginnings, it. the early chapters. And 
I guess to dive into your origin story um, makes a lot of sense as to where you are now. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't mind, I'd love yeah, to hear sure. a little bit about that. Um, look, again, just like any any other kid grew up in Wollongong, um, very unremarkable, uh, Dapto, <laughs> outer suburb of Wollongong. Um, my dad was a policeman. Um, my mum was a hairdresser. Um, yeah. Uh, you know what's funny? My dad was a policeman. My mum was a hairdresser. That's weird. Uh, These similarities yeah, keep, yeah, keep they popping, keep popping up. up. It's crazy. Um, yeah, and anyway, um, lived in suburban Dapto. Um, dad left when I was really, really young. Um, I wasn't, uh, hadn't turned four yet. Mm. Um, and we just had, and my mum just had my sister, uh, Nicole, who was really young. Um, and then that momentary um, time of stability was just gone. Um, yeah. And mum, mum loved us as best she could, um, but she found it hard to cope. Um, and uh, we lived with my nana a lot of the time um, when mum was off doing whatever it was she was doing. Um, and yeah, that was a roller coaster ride from about age four through about age nine. I went to about 12 different schools. Um, remember, I think I was in year, year two enrolling myself at Warrawong Public School, getting dropped off the front, you know, and introduce yourself to the principal, tell them you're here to, here to learn. Um, and those sort of things you never think about. But when you're old and you look back, you think, wow, that was probably a big deal for a little kid. For sure. And then, uh, yeah, and there was periods where yeah, I remember mum went to um, Darwin during Cyclone Tracy um, when that all happened. And I went to school with just my nan and I because um, my little sister went with my mum. Um, yeah, mum uh, uh, developed a bit of an alcohol uh, problem. She was... Um, Liked the bottle a lot, and uh, and things sort of yeah just spiralled. I uh, grew up in uh, lots of different housing commission from Warrawong to Port Kembla to uh, Balambi, uh, and then Mum sort of straightened herself out of about when I was about nine. Um, and I, I remember Mum did part time jobs uh, as a hairdresser, and she had this one client. I remember her name was Rita. And Rita would come over and I'd be sitting in the background doing whatever I was doing and Rita would tell these amazing stories of her son who joined the Navy and was off doing these amazing, cool things. And I was thinking, wow, I'd love to do something like that. Um, and I always sort of hung on to that. Anyway, um, I was nine. Uh, Mum uh, met another guy, um, great guy, Terry. Uh, they hooked up very quickly um, and all of a sudden there was a bit of stability around but not long after that, three kids come along and my sister and I kind of like just felt on the outer. Okay. Um, because there was this new family and they were like the focus. Um, so it was, we were a little bit lost. Uh, and then I think I mentioned in that summary, um, I was staying with my nan again, um, even at that point in time, and she took me to an Anzac Day march and I saw these kids walking down the street in a Navy uniform and I think, what's, what's going on here? These, these people look so young, what's, what's happening? And then uh, discovered the Navy cadets. And then from there, that was my little escapism. It made me feel I had a bit of purpose. I was sort of grown up. And it was just down here in Belmore Basin. Yeah, um, okay. And they took all sorts of misfits, and me being one of them. And uh, from there, that was just it. I thought this could be my avenue to get, get away from home and to try and be somebody. Uh, and I did all sorts of crazy stuff. I think I told you I... Um, 
I tried to learn the trumpet at, uh, at lunchtime <laughs> just, just, just to get away at the age of 15 because the Navy had this junior, junior recruit musician program and I was near tone deaf, so yeah. <laughs> I was hopeless, so failed Mate, that. you sounded all right at Gang of Youth, so I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, you must have heard a few, yeah, <laughs> a few okay. that night. Uh, pumped him out at Gang of Youth. But, um, yeah, um, yeah, so just always looking for something more, you know. And, um, yeah, and then after I finished Year 10, I ended up joining the Navy. And mm. that's when, yeah, everything started to I, unpack, I guess. I guess in that, I, he- I hear a few things, and, you know, we've spoken about this, so... I can understand why there's this sense of when you come from instability, as much as you said, whilst there was love, there's a sense of instability and this desire for discipline, a desire for like a sense of belonging. Yeah, for sure. Would you say, yeah, would you say that that desire outweighed the desire for adventure that was born from those early stories of a life in the military, in the Navy, and just your general sense of personality? Like, or was it both of them? What would have been more the driving force to head in that direction of the Navy at such a young age? I'd have to say it'd be a combination. Mm. Um, what's really interesting is that most people that you that, that go down that path have this very similar story. Um, and I'm definitely not comparing myself to th- this guy because he's up there on a pedestal. And <laughs> but Mark Donaldson, the VC winner, yeah. um, went to the military because he was looking for something else. Um, is looking to, to belong and he had a very similar background but so many people I worked with were in that similar sort of boat but were driven by a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging mm. and um, that purpose and belonging so the purpose being the adventure and being able to do yeah. something cool and important um, and the belonging um, being part of a like a team a really close-knit team and I suppose that's the it is a combination I think for me it's always interesting for me to hear stories like this or origin stories like this, Steve, because, you know, we've spoken about my family and our connections before. I had such stability and I had like the opposite end of the spectrum, like so much stability as a child that like I felt so loved, so safe and so secure all the time. So I, I've never experienced that world. And when I've had the opportunity I guess this podcast over the last two and a half years has been so eye-opening for me because you'd almost be a fool, you know, I was almost a fool to think that everyone experienced that as a kid because that's all I knew. Yeah. And so when people talk about, a, a, I guess, a sense of belonging and this lack of self and family and this, I guess, just this challenge from a young age, my challenges were different. They were health-related, but I, I could never understand that. And, you know, and as I've gotten older and matured and heard stories and spoken to people and met people from other worlds, I sense that there's this consistency of story in, in something like yours, you know, that old proverb. And it's like, you know, there's two two sons and they've got an alcoholic father and, you know, one ends up being an alcoholic and they say, why? And he says, because my father was. And yeah. one ends up being extraordinary in their field or their area of expertise. And, and they say, why? And he says, well, because my father was an alcoholic. And that's that choice. Yeah. And whilst I think some people fall victim to um, the more negative side of things and that becomes their story, I think, you know, understandably, because those origins are challenging. But when they find their way out of that or someone who makes a choice not to be that from the beginning, mate, I have so much respect for that and... Like I said, it's a challenge I haven't encountered throughout the course of my life. 
So hearing where you're at now and what you've done is, mate, I can't commend you enough for it because it takes so much courage at an early age to decide that you don't want what your childhood was. Yes. You know, it's really interesting, Faber, because I don't kind of like see it that way. I made everyone's choices a half chance and I guess I just made my choices. And you talk mm. about the two siblings. Well, that actually happened with me because my sister took a completely different path. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, completely different. Um, was that hard for you to see? It was, it was really hard to see at certain periods of time in my life because um, it couldn't be avoided. Um, it, was, it was everything, crime, drugs, drug addiction, mm. um, everything you could think of the worst of the worst, it was, it was like that. And every now and again it would pop up in my life. And I felt like um, there was only so much I could do. Um, yeah. And, yeah, my whole family experienced it. But it's just interesting because, yeah, it's a choice. It's a fork in the road and you could go one way or you go the other way. And, Definitely. And she went that other way. Um, and I, I, I found myself diving into things that immersed me away from it, away from the, that yeah. world, like the Navy, going overseas, diving, getting into just crazy stuff um, to pro- probably um, develop a sense of purpose in myself. Um, so important, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And making, you, 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 yeah, yeah, just that sense of purpose and, and, and belief. Because up until that, those all those school years when we went to hundreds of different schools, I was terrible at school. Um, mm. I couldn't concentrate. And I often wonder now if I've still got ADD or not. <laughs> but anyway, I couldn't concentrate. Um, I didn't fit in. Um, and I always searched for that, that belonging. could never get it until... I got older and, and found that path. So I always wanted wanted something and, and, and to be part of something, whereas um, my sister went went the other way, I think, just perhaps thought it was too hard. You know what, Steve, you said something just a moment ago. You said developed a sense of purpose and developed that purpose in your life. And I think that just like that choice of language is important. I think for a long time, you know, there's a period through my career in real estate where I felt really lost. Yeah. And... I remember as a young kid feeling like I knew who I was and what I wanted from my life. Yeah. And then at a certain point in my early 20s, I was like, I've lost every sense of that. Yeah, sure. And I think for a while I tried to find it, but then I realized that, you know, intent is nothing without action. And yeah. I think with purpose, you don't find it. This is the conclusion I've come to at this point in my life is you don't find it, you develop it, yeah. you form it. Yeah. And it's... And it's formed and developed by taking action and putting action to intent. Yeah. You know, talk about those first few years of the Navy experience and developing that sense of purpose and, you know, what, what did those adventures look like and what were those first few years of experience like? Well, I, I've got to be honest with you. I think I was too mature at the time to join the, join the Navy and I think that everything that happened to me growing up, I just wanted to get out and just mm. live the adventure and, and do those sorts of things. But there's a few things that you, you said before um that about purpose and i think connected to purpose is belief yeah you've got to back yourself and have a go because um you can't be scared of failure yeah do you know what i mean you've got to be open to it don't you got it you've got to have a crack and a lot of people i just see a lot of people that have so much potential but they're too scared to step step out of their comfort zone so yeah so i signed up joined the navy um got away um there was a lot of things I would have loved to do in the Navy, but uh, 
my aptitude tests weren't going to let me go that way. Um, so I joined up as a gunnery sailor, ran off to sea, um, ended up swapping weapons for a paintbrush and it wasn't what it panned out to be for me. Um, I found diving as a bit of a, um, uh, an avenue or way to get me off the paintbrushes. <laughs> so I went and did a, a ship's diving course in the Navy and that was that was. Uh, amazing it was really good because the diving is the route from the navy to get into special forces isn't it well it's a real first basic stage okay. but you've got to i've got to delineate it so there's ships divers in the navy which you just general ships divers and there's clearance divers i always aspired to be a clearance diver in the navy never quite got across the line um for, for whatever reason, I actually um, had a, a diving accident, um, ears stuffed up, couldn't dive anymore. And yeah. it was sort of a ticket of mine out of the Navy at the time. Uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, when I left the Navy and joined the police, I felt there was unfinished business with that whole sp- yeah. special forces diving side of the house. Um, so actually after I joined the Navy, I said, um, and my ears actually healed and I could start diving again. Um I said, I'm going to go back to the reserves and went back to the reserves and um, got involved with clearance diving team one and that was great. Um, so I ticked the box. I didn't give up on it, that whole yeah. purpose and belief. So gone down the path of the cops, but years later went back and, and finished. And I was there for, for 10 years working with the, the clearance divers in Sydney and learned a lot from that as well on a part-time basis. Um, that ended, I ended up having to stop that in 2000. Um, not long after 2000 when I was fully involved in tactical operations with the police because it was just it was just too full on. Um, yeah. And there was only hours in the day and at that stage I, I think my son had come along so it was a bit of a crazy time. But, um, yeah, I think I'm all over the place there, mate. Bring no, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I feel like I'm like that too. I sidebar a lot because you feel like ideas pop in your yeah. head and you've just got to go there and explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess your, your route into the police was a couple of mates who had gone and, and done yeah. the same, right? Yeah, exactly right. So a bit similar to your dad. There was a period yeah. of time um, where New South Wales police weren't recruiting. Mm. Mates had left the Navy. They'd gone down to Victoria. They were from Victoria. Um, I wasn't from there, uh, and I was living with my auntie at the time, um, who was a great woman. She's, she's passed on now, but she was a real positive influence in my life, a female influence, probably the only real positive female influence in my yeah. life, I'd say. Um, and she was my mum, my dad's um, uh, sister. Yep. Uh, never saw my dad um, or spent time with him growing up. School holidays had come along, um, and my dad's family probably felt sorry for us and took us up to Sydney for the school holidays and spent a lot of time with her. When I left the Navy and I was living with, I was in the Navy at that time as I was transitioning out of the Navy to find another job and go to the Victoria Police, um, she taught me to touch type. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it was fantastic and she gave me all these other tips. So I ended up, um, I couldn't believe it, I ended up getting an interview to get into the Victoria Police and uh, I, I caught a train Caught a train down there, couldn't afford a bus, bus flight, caught it down there. My mates were already left the Navy and they were back down there. Um, and what was really bizarre is um, when I got there, I was on the corner of Flinders Street Station thinking, never been to Melbourne before, this is pretty crazy. Oh, outside, sorry, I had been to Melbourne, but I'd only been to Crib Point um, okay, yeah. at the Navy base. I'd never been in the big city and got around too much. And there was a guy that um, I went to school with at Kira Boys High. And this guy was the roughest dude you'd ever come across. Um, always suspended from school, smoking behind the toilets, getting in the punch-ups. 
And I said, mate, what are you doing down here? And he goes, um, mate, I'm in the um, Australian Ballet Company. Oh, said, wow. What a flip. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he goes, yeah. And, um, yeah, and he'd, he'd made it into the Australian Ballet Company. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'll come to try out for the cops down here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that was my first introduction down there. Um, did all the tests at the Victoria Police Academy in this grand old monastery. And it was like a room full of about... I don't know, 100, 150 people all doing these exams. And at the end of the exams, they called everybody out in this massive corridor with these massive stained glass windows in this old monastery. And they started calling names out. Um, and uh, I thought that the names they called out were the people that were past the test and they were going to call them and then they moved to the next phase. And when everybody drifted away, I'm still standing there and it was about, I don't know, there would have been about 20 of us left. And uh, they said, uh, congratulations, so, I mean, you guys are through to the next stage. Uh, you'll have to do the physical. And I'm like, they've massively made a mistake here, but I'm going to go with it. I'm going yeah. gonna, to wing it. Yeah, the quicker and, I get over to where I need to be yeah, yeah, yeah. before give, they figure give, out. Give me the uniform and I'll just... Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, from there I um, yeah, ticked all the boxes and got in, moved to Victoria, and I was in the cops for a few years doing crazy stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Different time, completely different time in the police For down sure. there. And that's where, like, my purpose was always to get involved in uh, police tactical operations. It was just, like, the pinnacle. It's the only thing I ever really wanted to do. Um, and in that, that that couple of years that I was down there, it was about two and a half years, something like that, because um, you have to do your time on the street, um, I moved pretty quickly into a plainclothes drug, drug unit. They called yeah, it okay. a district support group um, back then. And it was, a, again, a crazy time. What so? What year was this? Quickly? This would have been nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety two. Is yeah. this like peak underbelly era down there? Well, that was all happening. So, yeah. um, uh, like a massive tragedy occurred um, just as I was joining with um, Tynan and Walsh, two young um, constables that were ambushed in a back mm. street as retribution to um, the, the killing of one of their one of their gang. Yeah. Um, by the armed robbery squad. Um, yeah, wow. Uh, down there at the time. And uh, I remember being at the academy and it was the first introduction that I'd had to the special operations group, these secretive dudes that got around in black uh, that nobody ever saw and they were protecting um, one of the witnesses who was pr- um, practising giving evidence at court um, at the mock court that they had the police at the police academy, okay, um, and all the security surrounding they, this guy um, Ryan, uh, and um, yeah, and I first saw these guys and go, wow, I'd love to be part of that. About 12, 12 months later, um, I, I had a, I got a crack at the selection course. I think there's a video of me actually. They did a doco at the time, and oh wow, and you see me. Um, Actually, withdrawing, it's quite embarrassing. <laughs> um, but, like, I could run the house down, but my upper body strength was not that great at the time. And I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but it was a good good eye-opener. And I never never really gave up from that dream. But I did want to come back to New South Wales. And I drifted back here in uh, 1992, went into the police academy there, had to do the whole thing all over again from scratch. <sighs> because I never had any transitional thing. I think it's like nurses and teachers. Teachers might be a bit different, but, um, yeah, had to do the lot from scratch. Um, yeah, and I remember even then at that, that, that time going through the courses there, and then every now and again the New South Wales Tactical Operations Unit guys would come in and, you know, there's this aura around these 
rock stars and thinking, yeah, um, not that I wanted to be a rock star, but I wanted to did, do what they did. Yeah. Because I knew what they did. And, um, uh, yeah, and that's when I got first introduced to that. Um, yeah, went to Campbelltown Police Station, worked there for a while, came down to Wollongong, got involved in a part-time tactical unit, uh, and then had my first crack at the TAU in um, 1998, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, that was really, really daunting. Nothing could prepare me for it. Um, yeah, just standing there with a bunch of hopefuls and just getting ripped apart by these guys uh, for anything they could think about. Um, yeah, and that seven days, um, I didn't make the end of the seven days of the first course. I ended up having uh, stress stress fractures in my, yeah. my knees. That's not an uncommon story in these selection oh, no, processes, mate. hey? Yeah. No, that's right. It's like... Um, uh, yeah, you have to prepare for the year. Like, it's yeah. no different. Than, well, it's probably a little bit... Maybe not, it's not definitely not as hard as probably SASR, but it's yeah. up there with most most selection courses. Like, um, yeah, they course. absolutely beast you. And, um, yeah, the first one was just, uh, just again, underprepared. Uh, you, you do this crazy stretch of carry where um, you, you're pushing these Unimog ties out the back of Holdsworthy Army Base because you use all the army facilities and they've got a stretcher and it's got all these weights on it and they're throwing sound and flash grenades at you. <laughs> And they say, yeah, it's only going to go for an hour or two. And then, you know, four hours later, it's in the dark and you're still <laughs> going. And then they'll have a bus and they'll get the bus to pull up. And they say, all right, you know, well, boys, it's all done now. Drop everything, get on the bus and you'll, you'll you know, crawl toward the bus. And then the bus will take off into the, you know, oh, the distance. You've got all the... Just yeah, breaking so it's just down. that sort of stuff, yeah. And, um, yeah, but second time around, I was, I was more fortunate in 99. But... Again, you know, your choices are half chance and that year they'll take on a lot of extra people. So, um, but, but here's the thing, Steve. Here's the important thing for me in, in everything you've just said there. The purpose and this, the sense of belonging must have been so strong because for you to go down a Vic, get into the academy, yeah. pass the academy, come in, have a crack at TOU down there, miss out, come back here, go through the rigmarole of yeah. back into the academy like you basically everything that you've worked yeah. hard to earn is almost like stripped away from you and you've got to start again. Yeah. To go through all of that, fail again and then come back for the third time at TOU yeah. or the second time in New South Wales. That that takes a special kind of person. And of all of the you know, all of the books that I read, the podcasts I listen to, the people that I've studied I think that the most incredible and special people in this world are people who didn't have the talent or weren't given the opportunity straight away. They're the people who keep getting knocked down and keep getting back up because that builds a sense of character. That builds and develops a sense of resilience. Yeah. And I I just don't know if you can be in a world that is so challenging and so testing, in a world where pain is inevitable, suffering is a choice. Yeah. And if you choose to suffer for the right things, you get stronger. If you allow the suffering of the wrong things to beat you down, yeah. then you get weaker for it. And I think you chose that first option. Yeah. Suffer at the things that will make <clears throat> me stronger, that will build resilience, that will build character, and it will make me the man that I want to become. And, mate, like, when I look at that, they're the people that inspire me, people like you, because the people who are handed things in this world, they don't understand what it feels like to play in the dirt. Yeah, yeah, and the minute that the dirt finds them, 
they break down it's the end yeah i think you appreciate it more definitely you know, um and yeah nothing comes for free in this world and if you want something you can do it you can do any most people can do anything they want but they just don't believe in it and they just don't commit yeah. commit enough to it so i always wanted to do it and again like i said my chance choices are half um half luck you know um <laughs> a lot of the time um but yeah well, luck is preparation and hard work meeting at that T intersection, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's that combination, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but talk, yeah, so... So talk to me about TOU. Like, because, you know, even, you know, I've heard a few of your stories and I've, you know, had the pleasure of having a few people who have been in similar fields yeah. on the show. So I understand degrees to it, but maybe the people listening or watching yeah, wouldn't sure. understand the umbrella um, that TOU is and, you know, all that work that comes under it. Yeah, definitely. Like, a lot of people... Uh, watch SWAT on TV. Yeah. It's nothing like that. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so TAU is a tactical operations unit of New South Wales Police Service. Um, they're charged with all high-risk operations that are beyond any other capabilities that the police may have. The most dangerous jobs get handed over to the TAU, uh, including um, counter-terrorism. Uh, so that's pretty much their mandate. For them to leave the office, they need um, permission of a, a com commissioner um, to actually um, go out to do their job. Uh, there's another, a lot of other units you see on TV that look like the TAU, but they're not the TAU. Yeah. Um, there's another unit called uh, PAWS, Public Order Riot Squad. Um, they have, have some limited skills, um, but they're not um, the prime counter-terrorism high-risk unit. Um, so, yeah, so there's, yeah, there, uh, we won't get into like, the exact numbers of the unit and, and some of those sort of things, it's probably pretty sensitive, but, um, yeah, very small unit of guys. Uh, I think every year they run a selection course <clears throat> um, and, you know, if I get around 100 people try out for it, they might take 20, 30 on the selection course. The end of the selection course, I think you average about eight to ten people will actually finish the course yep. after that week of complete um, torture. Torture, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, you know it's not bastardisation. It's just seeing who's got the grit to be there at the end. Of course. And it's not just the physical side of it. It's um, I remember you know being woken at two o'clock in the morning to do an assignment and seeing who, people who can stay awake, um, and yeah, all sorts of crazy things like that. Um, so it's just who's got the aptitude to work under pressure and, and things like that. If you finish the course, um, <clears throat> you may not get selected. A lot of people don't get selected even though they finish it. They just don't think they fit into that mould. But if you do, you go on to the SWAT phase of the course, which is about six to eight months of back-to-back -back training and skills going through all the weapons, um, uh, submachine guns, assault rifles, shotguns, less lethal munitions and all those sorts of things. Then you move on to um, close-quarter battle tactics, which is like, it's like dancing in rooms. It's like synchronisation and I was absolutely terrible at it. I fact, love what you said in your email to me. Sorry to interject, but the, this morning when I was reading it, you described it as um, some form of like uniquely choreographed ballet. <laughs> it is absolutely crazy. It's like a one inch too far that way, one inch too far uh, to, to, to the left and they'll be ripping you apart. Yeah. And I guess it's high stakes sort of thing because of when course. you work in a close environment, um, eventually 
you get to live fire. So you've got your teammates shooting live rounds past your head at yeah, targets wow. that you have to hit like that. Of course. So it's really high sort of stakes. And I was, like I said, I was absolutely terrible at it. Failed it the first time. Everybody normally has a nemesis. So that was mine. Yeah. Um, and it took me a lot of work to overcome that. So that was one of the courses. Um, and then you work, go on to re- uh, repelling off buildings and things like that, bushcraft, navigation. Um, and you can fail at any sort of skill. And normally they give you a second crack at it. And if you if you had nothing, they had nothing to work with, then they'd, you'd probably be shown the door to find another another job. Like I said, when I went through during the Olympics, they they took extra numbers on, so I was a little bit lucky, had a little bit more leeway. Um, but I got I was ridden like a stolen donkey by none of the instructors and um and just had to try and they always find hard. a favorite don't they <laughs> oh yeah no, yeah no i just i was like a beacon yeah uh you know uh but it's changed a lot that whole selection program i think that um for the better i think for the better i think uh um i went back to the tau a few years ago and i just felt it was a different level of professionalism there now yeah I think it's evolved a lot. Um, the days of um, screaming at candidates for six months are sort of gone. Um, and it's, I, th- I think I like to think that I took a bit of that back as when I eventually become an instructor. And I took a lot of it from working closely with Special Forces, the SAS and, yeah. and, and command commandos. And those guys on their courses don't say anything. If you make a fuck up, or something like that, they'll have their notebook, they'll come up and say, can you explain to me what you did then? They'll write crazily and not say a thing to you and walk away. Yeah. And it absolutely sends you nuts. But it was a different approach. It was like um, you end up getting a lot more out of people. And at the end of the day, I wanted to get people through the course that wanted to be there and of were course. there for the right reasons. And so the focus was not about how many people could actually fail, which was probably a mentality for a while there. How many people can we crack off so we do look like the elite, but it changed to, okay, can we make this person a good operator? And that's where it went. So my story was, yeah, I did all those, about the TO, you did all those courses and then you, you're in a probation period and you're going around doing high-risk jobs and things like that. Um, I was always looked at as probably a subpar operator for a long time. But whenever I got the chance, I was down on the range, shooting, shooting, shooting. And there's a few guys that um, I still look up to as, as mentors, um, and, and they know who they are. Uh, that said, this guy's never going to give up, so we might as well work with him. And so on night shift, um, the TOU do shifts, 12, 12 shifts, day shift and night shift. On night shift, I'd be shooting, shooting, shooting just to improve my skills. Eventually, um, someone pulled out of a skills enhancement course. So every year the TOU and all the SWAT teams in Australia go over to Perth. Uh, well, actually, they, they mix it up now with different special operations um, commands. Uh, it used to be one year they'd do it at the SAS, the other year it'd be at Holsworthy. Um, and you'd all come together, they'd send the best operators and um, you'd work on your skills and um, you'd work with special forces guys. Uh, and I got a crack, and everyone couldn't believe it. They're sending Budjo, what? Um, and went over there, and surprisingly, um, I did really well. Um, you know, runner-up student of merit and all sorts of crazy things, and um, came back and um, slowly started to get a bit more respect from the people there. Of course. Um, uh, from there, um, yeah, I started to get leadership opportunities, started to run jobs, uh, and... It built my confidence up, but I never gave up. And that how, was the whole thing. how old were you at this stage? Uh, I would have been 30. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so, that's still so young in the scheme of things, isn't it? Well, it, it took it? a long time to get there. And if you look at the average, I think the average operator at the TAU is about 26, something oh, like really? that. Oh, uh, really? Late, late 20s, I think, they, they first get there. And I think it's very similar in the special operations community. Yeah. So you need a bit of maturity to get there. Um, so that's how, yeah, that's how old it was. Um, yeah, and then uh, from there, uh, it, uh, that's basically what the TAU did. I mean, I did everything from you know, uh, sitting in places waiting for bank robberies to occur to um, looking up underworld figures to rescuing people from um, sieges and stuff like that. And it was really funny because you don't think too much of it at the time. You know, people see this stuff on TV and we go from a siege out west um, at Mount Druitt or something like, somewhere like that um, to, to perhaps doing a, a counter-terrorist tasking with um, the AFP in Asia or something like that. And in between it, you go, what are we going to have for lunch? What are you going to do tonight? And it's just like... Who's thinking chicken is... and cheese toasty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like so surreal. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And As you said, the ordinary man doing extraordinary things. Yeah, and you just don't think anything of it, but it was just absolutely crazy. And you always used to think, you know, you go to a job and execute a search warrant and you think... These people have no idea who we are or what we're doing, and this is just yeah. completely out of the ordinary for them. And yeah, it was quite, it was quite bizarre. Um, but from there, um, I think uh, yeah, I took a break in 2004. Um, I think I might have mentioned this in the story. Um, a mate of mine who I was in the TOU with, um, who was very closely aligned with the, the commandos, he was a reserve commando, but did a lot of did a lot of full time work with them. A bit similar to me at the time with the, the clearance divers. Um, and he got a gig in Iraq, training special forces commandos. And he said, do you want to come? And I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and maybe I was a little bit too quick to jump on that bandwagon. But, um, yeah, we actually – and it was a little bit dodgy at the time in that um, I'd t- taken long service leave from the police to actually do this amazing adventure. It was a really high-paying um, gig at the time. And I was working on a US Department of Defence counter-terrorism project where we're supposed to be training these um, Iraqi police commandos. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely crazy, uh, crazy six months that I took off there. Um, I don't know whether I'd still be doing it because I had a bit of an accident, as I mentioned, coming my appendix yeah. burst when I was coming home on leave and ended up in hospital. Whilst, whilst in air on a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coming back on the Emirates flight. <laughs> um, can't recommend uh, Emirates highly enough. They, they looked after me. It was one way you get in a first-class seat up the front. Um, but, yeah, so I thought it was a dodgy kebab I'd had at bagged at airport on, on, on the way out. But um, it turns out that the um, insurgents were crapping in our water supply and they'd infiltrated the base that we worked down at Anamanea, which is um, south of Baghdad, um, which is absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, so that was a crazy period as well. Um, uh, there's a few people on the project that I worked with that uh, that didn't come home, lost their lives. Um, there were people that we worked... The surreal stuff, you know, the sliding doors moments. Like, to get from Anamanea to the airport at Vibe, we had to take a helicopter. Uh, we knew the helicopter crew. Um, great guys, a couple of Fijians um, and a, some Romanian pilots. They landed us at Baghdad. Helicopter took off, got blown out of the sky. All dead. Fuck. Um, you know, those left, yeah. left and right moments, you think, you know, how many times had I turned left, could it have gone south and I wouldn't be here today? Mm. often think about that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so that was a crazy period and I learnt so much from that, that period. 
Um, Can I ask you a question on that, Steve, quickly? Like, you, you talk about that moment there, and I know this is something that we probably connected on for different reasons. How, how does that make you feel about how life it really is so precious and how short it is? Does it, does it change your perspective on everything? Do you know what? That experience, along with a number of the experiences um, that I had um, in doing tactical policing, whether it was with New South Wales Police or doing the overseas stuff um, with the AFP, which we may, may touch on, um, made me think that what's the worst that can happen if I give something a crack? Um, so when I went off into the corporate world, I compared everything to what things that incidents that had happened in Iraq, things that had happened to other mates. No one's going to get killed today because of a decision that I'm I'm going to make in in corporate world. So, you know what, I'll just make it. Um, So I think it made me make decisions. um, They hold less weight? Yeah, everything holds less weight. In the regular world? Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you come back from places like that, whether it be, you know, veterans probably know this more than most people, when you come back from places like that, and you see what the problems are kids have today, um, you just think you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. it just makes you value things a lot. I mean, my kids are no different to any other kids. You know, they've had a privileged upbringing and I want to give them everything I can. And But there's things, some things that I can't, I wish I could say to them, you know, like, um, you know, if you had seen this person in this war zone holding their... Um, their, their dead parents or something like that, then perhaps yeah. you wouldn't think that. You'd never, ever, you can never talk about things like that. Um, and the only people who really get that are other people that have been in similar situations. But I think that that resilience that's built for me is that um, it's had a positive and a negative effect in that of course. critical decisions in corporate world um, I can make relatively easy. I can't decide what I'm going to have for breakfast, though. If I don't have to make a critical decision, and this has affected me a, a, a little bit, and this is part of that um, whole thing of um, this new thing about complex PTSD, um, which I've been diagnosed with, um, is when you don't have to make a critical decision, often you don't. Uh, yeah. So that's part of my personality <laughs> that's formed that way. Um, I don't know whether I answered that question or not. No, you, you have, mate. You, you honestly have, and... And it's, it's why I have so much respect for it because, and this is a funny thing that we spoke about, I think when we had lunch or maybe when we were at the, at the gig in Sydney, I'm not military minded at all. I'm not from a military background. And whilst I've had, you know, a father and a grandfather in the cops, they were more so in the general duty space and dad done a few little riot squad things. And so it's not like I've come from a real tactical background where I've been bred into that yeah. mindset, but... <clears throat> I love listening to people like yourself. You know, it's a reason I've had two other special forces guys on the podcast as well, in Rich Davini and Dean Stott. Yep. It's the reason I've listened to hours of Jocko Willink's show yep, on end. <laughs> yeah, because there is something so fascinating about it, but so grounding that when I think I feel overwhelmed or when I think far out, this is a challenge, and you listen to that and you think... Yeah, check myself there because whilst all of our challenges are real and we all do our own experiences, to to hear you share these stories and talk about the loss of mates and the challenges and the adversity that you face in the field in these areas and these remote war zones, mate, it's it really brings you back down earth. Yeah, and I guess um, I, I'm. It's not lost on me that you know I've just done a 
fraction of what some most, you know, particularly veterans that have gone yeah. to Afghanistan. My stories are dwarfed in comparison to other people's out there. You know, um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just one guy of of many, and like there's people who've done a lot more worse and crazy stuff than I. Particularly in that that era of yeah, I've hardly yeah. done anything compared to those guys. But they're still. You know, their, their experiences have formed my personality and, um, yeah, I've learned a lot from it as well. Um, Makes for a very rich life in, in the it, sense of experience and yeah, adventure. Yeah, 100%. And it's, you know, it's been a fun ride as well, you know. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's been really good. And I suppose, um, yeah, I mean, there's the the AFP side of the house. I, well, I, which is I want to dive different. into that because that was going to be my next question yeah. or my next direction for this episode is... One of my favourite stories from when we sat down, and I'm not sure if you're allowed to share it, so I'll just say um, Solomon Islands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. yeah, so you shared with me a story about, was it, that was when you were in the AFP, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So in 2007, um, I, I'd, been, I'd come back from Iraq in um, 2005, took a bit of time to convalesce. Um, getting over my burst appendix because um, <laughs> I actually it was a crate. It was, I was in hospital for some time because I didn't realise that my appendix had burst on the plane and I formed peritonitis. Uh, yeah. Whole body sort of shut down um, and it lost heaps of weight. It took a long time to get back to where I was. Convalesced, got back to where I was, um, back to the TAU doing all that crazy stuff. 2007 came around and um, John Howard um, had decided to develop this tactical unit. Um, that could do a lot of overseas missions um, and they went around and um, recruited from a lot of the um, tactical operations unit around, around Australia, much to the disappointment of those units because they lost a lot of good operators, offered a lot more money um, and pretty much formed this unit called the Operations Response Group um, out of Canberra and yeah, it was just made up of SWAT guys from around Australia essentially. Uh, and we went down there, it was in its infancy, um, had all this gear thrown at us, um, stuff that you'd only dream of having in, in the States. Um, and, but uh, yeah, the direction at the time, the AFP commanders really didn't know what to do with us. Um, and I think everybody, not many people really uh, liked us because we were the new kids with all the toys. Um, but very quickly we started doing all sorts of operations in the Solomon Islands, Timor Leste and yeah, had some amazing opportunities. And Solomon Islands was a big part of that, a part of Ramsey, the regional assistance mission over there yeah. um, in rebuilding and stabilising the place. So I hope I'm getting this right and I hope I'm correct here. If I remember the story, you were hunting down a warlord who had been killing people? Yeah, so anyone who's been over there will know um, Stanley Gatoa. Um, he, he was a... He was a a warlord. Um, there was a few of them over there that had escaped from um, uh, Rovay prison and they scattered off into the hills. And that's what we spent most of our time trying to hunt down these guys. Um, uh, a couple, a couple of mates actually ended up catching him long, long after I'd gone home. Um, they kept, kept, kept chasing him. Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of times in, in um, the, the hills and in, in the jungles of the Solomon Islands, trying to track these guys down. A lot of time. How like how long is a lot of time? Is this month? Are we talking weeks, months? Oh, um, yeah, normally week, weeks at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd go to an outpost and then we'd go out and spend small reconnaissance mission into the jungles and stuff like that. So um, how on on those missions where you're out there in the jungle in the thick of it, 
how often are you coming into contact with some of these guys? Rarely. Rarely. Rarely happen. It's like, uh, so there's a lot, a lot of time. Hide and seek world champions. (laughs) 100%. Yeah, yeah. These guys were crazy. And the thing is that a lot of the villagers um, protected these people or either scared of them or were on, on board with them. Um, we tried to do a lot of hearts and minds things with the villagers in terms of giving them medicine, providing first aid, yep. um, you know, inoculating them, treating them for ringworm and things like that. Um, but still, these guys were ghosts. They were very good at what they did, these guys. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, that, that war that they fought between Guadalcanal and, um, and Malaita, which is uh, what caused a lot of the problems, um, went for a long time. And these guys were resilient and they were used to the jungle. We weren't. I mean, we'd fly in... Um, go into the jungle, spend a day in the jungle and then get winched out and people would think we're amazing. We didn't do anything. We'd probably crawl because the canopy was so thick in these recon jobs that we did. You, you'd get maybe 10 metres with, with a machete mm. and it'd take you half an hour. Um, and it was times consuming. But, um, yeah, a lot of effort for not a lot of um, result. Uh, and in between all that, there was so much um, political unrest with a lot of riots um, that were going on, Chinatown burnt down a number of times. Um, I yeah, mean, right. that was surreal in itself, um, you know, quilling riots with less lethal munition with guys running past you with machetes and all sorts of crazy yeah, stuff. Wow. So, um, it was, look, it was a great, it was a great experience over there. Um, but notwithstanding, um, we did all sorts of other crazy things like uh, we took all the weapons off the villages. Yeah. Um, uh, at the time, there was an amnesty, um, and but what happened was that villagers started getting eaten by crocodiles. This mate, this story, <laughs> I just I have not been able to forget about this story since you told me. It's pretty crazy. Please share. Yeah. Um, so as a hearts and minds thing, we were the only guys that had all the high powered weapons, uh, all the sniper rifles, and all the gear to be able to go and get rid of a, a problem crocodile. So we did a lot of these jobs where we'd jump on a boat. Um, or a helicopter and go out into places where, seriously, you're still looking at people with loincloth. Um, yeah. It's like uh, it was a scene out of Apocalypse Now. Like going, going up the yeah. river. It was just a completely another world, but it was beautiful at the same time. And these were great opportunities. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of crazy croc jobs we did um, where um, one, I remember one particular one where we, we went up there and we were pretty, I was pretty inexperienced at this at the time and we were eating cheesecake at three o'clock in the morning waiting for a crocodile that we'd baited with a frozen chook and, and, and some kid's dog from the local village to turn up. <laughs> You've got to feel for the dog. I know, hey? this guy turns up with his little dog. Ma- yeah. Marley thank, the thank dog. Yeah, oh, yeah, God. yeah, yeah. And next morning the dog and the, and the, and the chicken's gone and... And the crocodile's still alive and stuff like that. Because that croc was taking kids that had so the crossing little, at the school. Yeah, there's a little river and uh, the kids went to, to school in a church on the other side. Well, it wasn't even a river, it was a stream. It would have been about five metres wide, but very, very deep. So the croc would swim out in the morning, sun itself up and down and time itself often when the kids were swimming across, they had to swim across this little creek to get to school. And a couple of kids were taken, yeah. yeah. So we went up to do that and um, we ended up uh, getting the crocodile. But as as it turned out, the croc- we thought we got the crocodile. It sunk. Um, these things are really hard to hard to kill. Fucking dinosaurs, They're man. incredible. They're just, yeah. And I've got so much respect for them. They're smart as well. Yeah, and, they are. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. We, we thought we'd shot this thing. And um, I was at but, my accountant, sorry to interject. Yeah, I was at yeah. my accountant's on Monday or Tuesday, are they? 
and he'd just been up in Port Douglas and I'd been to Port Douglas at the start of the year. He's a mad golfer and he was showing me a photo of them on the golf course taking a selfie with this big ass fucking crock about the back. five yards away from him. <laughs> and he's like, mate, I'd yeah. nearly put my hand in to try and grab me ball out of the water. And he goes, yeah, fucking scary things. And, and they are so smart. That's yeah. the thing people don't give them credit for. And I just learned that on the spot. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, these things it came up a few days later and it was still alive. So we ended up going back down. We ended up killing another crocodile, which was hidden up up the um, up the little estuary where it sleeps at night. Um, that was a funny one because my mate got a, uh, a stoppage um, on, on his <coughs> sniper rifle and I've um, unloaded this thing with shotgun. I think I, it was pretty close range. Got a couple on it. We thought it was dead. I've grabbed it by the tail and my mate's motoring down, back down to the, the river mouth and I'm hanging onto this crocodile and all of a sudden it comes back to life and it's <laughs> kicking all over the place. And anyway, but um, yeah, some crazy stories. With, with and like, it's got to be done because, man, there's kids getting taken. I know, yeah. And that and was one of the biggest things that people appreciated when we went to those villages yeah. and got rid of these crocodiles. But they're still there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> wow. it, was a, it was a big hearts and minds thing at the time and it was, um, but it was a great opportunity for the guys. And, for sure. Uh, and just to get away from Honiara and to get away um, and, and get into the villages and things like that and meet, meet a lot of local people. I'll, I'll always remember that and I'll, I'm thankful for that that experience. So, yeah, the AFP gave me um, a lot of experiences. Um, now, I have to say it, <clears throat> the work tempo, the actual operations, when you talk about tactical operations, I think the TAU, we were doing something like 350 high-risk operations a year, which is massive. So um, as an individual, how many would you be involved in over oh, the course of a year? Well, you probably do a couple a week. Yeah, well, no, okay. More, maybe, yeah, maybe three or four a week if you're yeah, well. in a busy period. So that's where it just all blends into, in, in, into one. But con- conversely, the AFP, we would do very, very few. Um, yeah. But the jobs we did were, were pretty big. It was on Christmas Island, deploying to Christmas Island yeah. um, when the detention centres were being um, burnt, burnt down and things like that. It was a really high tempo period there, uh, but so yeah, so that was a it was a really really good opportunity. Um, I got to go and work in Hong Kong at the time with special duties unit, and um, yeah, we had a great um, sniper team that did lots of stuff overseas. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience. But it, it come at a cost, you know, because I had a family and I was spending a lot of time away, and. Um, yeah, and eventually that broke down and um, I had to make a choice. And after years and years of living the dream, um, big boys' toys, just doing things that people would pay to do, um, I had to choose to be close to my family. So it was really, really hard for me and I had to extract myself from that environment, that life that I'd lived for so long uh, and come back to Sydney just to be close to my kids because my marriage had broken down. Yeah, and I as a result of being away. And uh, look, there was a lot of things and most of it was on me. Um, and I think the distance had a lot to do with it. And, uh, yeah, and I really wanted to be a dad in my kids' life, in, in their lives, so made that made that sacrifice to, just, just, to, just to be with them. Um, and... Yeah, and so transition away, but I was lost. I was really, really lost. Uh, and so I took a, just to get back to Sydney at the time, I took a job at the airport with the AFP um, as, one of the, um, as one of the sergeants, the, the team leaders up there. But yeah, I was destroyed. Not long after it, I actually got shingles. 
Um, yeah. And it was just a Stress really low, low yeah. point. And I thought, you know what? <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to give a I'm going to have a crack at something else, and uh, just applied for a job as a, a general manager of salvage. I had no idea what salvage was. It looked, looked pretty cool at times, saving ships and stuff like that. Um, and ended up getting the job. Couldn't believe it. Um, and there I was with this big mahogany desk in this <laughs> massive office and I was the general manager of Australia of this marine salvage company. Um, and that was a new adventure. Um, but you know what? I had that attitude that we spoke about before, you know what? If no one gets killed about a decision I make, then it's a good day. Yeah, what can go wrong? <clears throat> what can go wrong? Can I, can I jump in? I've got to say, I don't envy your, your need to make a decision uh, at the end of the AFP career. You know, we spoke about it a little bit off cam and, you know, it's been a big part of our conversation um, since we've connected is this sense of adventure and this sense of purpose and belonging that you get from the job or the career path that you take and how much that means to you yeah. and how much that defines you as a human being. And then in your life, what you experienced in childhood, in the early years of your life, that lack of parental figure at times that sense of no belonging um Mm. and then making sure that at this point in your life when you're leaving the afp that you don't want your children to have that same experience you know i can't imagine how hard it would be to walk away from the things you love to you know and even though they're your they're your kids and they're your people and their family and we, we all do incredible things for our family Mate, that's such a hard sacrifice to make. Yeah, it was uh, it was really really tough. And you know what? There's not many days go by um, where I don't miss the the camaraderie of those those, yeah. those special operations teams that I work with and the uniqueness of those people. But I don't regret anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and everything happens that. for a reason. Um, and you have a great relationship with your kids. Oh from, yeah, know. we've got yeah we've got a great great relationship with with, with the guys. I mean. Um, they get a lot. Of, they get a kick out of me telling these stories of course, mate, <laughs> as of well. Course. Um, but yeah, I mean, somebody once said to me, um, I think it's, it's a bit cliched, you know, if you um, if you enjoy what you do and you're doing what you want to do, you never work a day in your life. And I think that's so true. You know, life is so short um, to be stuck doing something that you don't want to do. Um, so I encourage I my kids to follow their dreams and they can do whatever they want to do if they really want to do it. And I think that's just um, it's just one of the messages that, that I wanted to get out. And, um, and it was no different when I went to, to Spitzer. You know, I found myself travelling the world, um, tendering on massive wreck removal jobs and the learning curve was increasingly s- steep. Um, and I was working with a great people, also specialists in their field, you know. I remember I was... Um, I was on one salvage job in uh, New Caledonia. It was a long-line reef um, fishing vessel that had ran aground on this World Heritage-listed reef and we'd got the contract to break it up and, and, and remove it as best we could without leaving a mess. And I was working for these salvors, um, mariners that had these special skills to go on the ships and do this sort of thing. And <clears throat> I was driving one guy to the airport and he said to me, and this is that whole thing about you don't know who you don't, of course, talking yeah. to him, and he's saying, Steve, what you've got to understand is you'll never ever come across a more tightly knit specialist bunch of guys if you're working with in the in the salvage industry on, on this ship. Um, you'll never come across that these guys are the elite of the elite. And um, and what do you say? He said, Really? 
That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah. you just never know who you never know. And in rightly saying that they were good at what they did. But, yeah. you know, there's other people out there doing amazing For things sure. as well. So, For sure. Um, so that was also a great chapter. Um, and, uh, yeah, that lasted for three years and it was fantastic at the time um the company ended up um the company ended up uh, merging with another salvage company um and i was looking at other opportunities and i'd always wanted to go out and work for myself at that time anyway and did branched out and started consulting and con- consulted consistently since then but i've had a few false starts with a few senior senior roles where i've um got into them and gone eh, maybe I've taken on this a little bit too quickly and it just wasn't what I thought it was. Or um, a lot comes back to the people that I've always worked with in the yeah. in that previous community and, like, um, it was just never really the same. Uh, so I struggled a little bit there, particularly in key senior, senior management roles where, um, particularly in some areas, um, some government areas, I went non-specifics, <laughs> but... Where it took so long to make what was a fundamentally simple decision to execute, <clears throat> and that failure and ability to execute, and that failure and ability to really lead and nurture people was really yeah. missing, and and I found that that was really solidified in that um, uh, police tactical groups and special operations community that I'd previously worked in, and that frustrated me a lot when I couldn't get things across the line or execute. As I, as I wanted to. Well, when you're used to a certain standard, mm. how do you then settle? It's, it's hard to settle for something below it. And and that's not to undermine anyone, but, you know, you can... And I know you, you're so humble that you won't take a compliment like this, but I can imagine saying to someone like Michael Jordan, hey, come and play Wednesday night league, you know, basketball at the Snake Pit in Wollongong. Yeah. And the unprofessionalism <clears throat> would drive that man crazy. Mm. Because he's used to a certain standard, he's he's been a product of the environment that is a certain standard, and he's set standards yep. within really high pressure environments for so long mm. that it would be hard to come back and see things that, like you said, should be simple decisions stewed over for weeks and months, and, yeah, yeah, and you know many meetings. Yeah, what I've found is it's probably not so much a, a part of it's that background that I've been blessed and. Ex- and being able to experience um, at that 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 level of working in that that sort of pointy end team environment, um, but a lot of it's got to do with culture in organisations that I've yeah. found, where people do something and they become specialists at something, but they've been there forever, and because they've been there forever, they think there's no other way of doing something. So, when other leaders perhaps come into their their organisation, um, they uh, they said, well, that can't be done any other way. Uh, and that really frustrates me uh, because I remember, and I learnt this a lot too, and this is something I took from the special operations background, is that the most junior man on a team always had a voice because of the stakes that were involved. Um, and I remember guys that had been in the TOU two years arguing with inspectors that had been forever around a way... Sh- something should be done, but everyone had a voice. And I found that in corporate world, it's, that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, a lot can be done about mentoring and and uh, developing people and listening to people's voice, which is a big thing in um, in that uh, special operations community. Well, yeah, and that's, that's one thing that I remember you saying to me at lunch is whether you're a commander or 
someone who's very much in the origins of yeah. their career in the special forces, yeah. you get that same respect. Yeah. When it comes to throwing ideas into the pool and yeah, learning yeah. off each other and growing. Yeah. Because you've got to have that mindset in that space, right? Yeah, 100%. And you're working in small teams. Um, yeah. And you're talking about A-type personalities. Um, I think it's um, neuropeptide Y. It's this chemical <laughs> that's, that's involved with a lot of people with A-type personalities. And they want to have a voice and you want to pe- make people feel like they're heard. But you might have missed something. Nobody yeah. knows everything. And that's the beauty about working in those groups that everybody has something to contribute. You know, it takes a long time to often get the respect um, and, and feel part of the team, even though you you've probably got it you know because you're in all of these people around you in that special racing community but you'll you'll always have a voice particularly in debriefs and things like that it's it's really important for all of these experiences and this life that you've this very rich life that you've led and i say rich um with the definition of experience adventure learnings wisdom all of these things that are actual riches Mate, I feel as though we're at the precipice of this next chapter of your life, which is a career I can see for you in this storytelling space. And, you know, this is one of the reasons we connected so heavily. I just, I can't see a world in which you do not share your story via audio or video format where it's not written words on a, on a hard copy book, a Kindle and, you know, spoken yeah. word in audio book and where you're not on stage delivering your story, but those gems of learnings and, um, you know, attribute developing characteristics and just that, that, I guess that content to people that needs to be heard. I just feel like you've got so much to offer and like, like, you know, we've said it a million times and, and had conversations about it, but I just want to encourage you that that's a world that I think deserves to have you in it. Thanks mate. And I think, um, I've got to be honest with you, you're an inspiration. <laughs> to me or we're we're back slapping each other and um (laughs) i never really thought too much about that and well i hadn't thought a lot about it but never really doing anything serious about it until we've actually connected so thank you for that and i think more about how i can actually um pass a message on to young people about having a crack believing in yourself and having a bit of purpose so important yeah I think it's so what's something missing with a lot of young men at the moment so So maybe for any of the any of the publishers (laughs) ghostwriters um just people in this world in this industry listening because i know there's probably a few that listen to the pod that i've connected with reach out to the man we're going to make sure there's some details for you in the show notes i want to dive into um a phase of the show called five questions and five answers i'm completely unprepared for this mate but but i love that i think sometimes (laughs) the the best ones are the unprepared ones this is almost a beautiful conclusion to a, a great conversation incredible story told it is potentially the trailer where people are first hearing of your story and then might go on to listen to the full episode because this is released, as you would know, yep. as two separates. Um, but I want to dive into this. And the first question is, is there one book or one podcast that you'd recommend to those listening or watching in? <sighs> Can I have a book and a podcast? Go for it. <laughs> um, a great book that I read a few years ago um, is a book called Shantaram. Okay, um, say that again. Shantaram. Okay. A lot of listeners out there would know it. Um, it's an incredible story about resilience, about a guy who, and it's a story about redemption as well. A guy actually escapes from Pentridge Jail, oh, makes wow. his way to India and starts all these little medical clinics over there. Um, incredible. And the richness, Never heard of this. It's, mate, you would love it. Um, and the richness 
that he develops in himself and the, what he gets back from actually giving something to these, these shanty towns um, in building these medical centres um, from somebody who was a, a drug addict who escaped from Pentridge Jail. It's an amazing story. So, yeah, it's inspirational. It means that it's never too late for you. Um, and, and you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. It's a great book. Definitely. Yeah, so it's, it, I think that's a, that's a good book that I like. Um, Beautiful message. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, podcasts, uh, one of your favourites, Jocko Willink. Uh, yeah. I love him and his book, Extreme Ownership. He's good, uh, isn't he? About owning your shit. So, yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's number one. Jocko is one of those ones where you've got to strap in and, and have a little bit of time up your sleeve. You like do. Like, they're long. Yeah. But they're worth it. Like, it's... I would listen to... Because there's, you know, commonly two plus hours, two to four hours worth of content in each episode. Yeah, there is. And you can strap in over the course of a couple of gym sessions or your weekly commute yep. and just sort of pick up where you left off. There's so many gems. A lot of his messages are really simple though. They're and practical, aren't they? Yeah. Which is why I think it's powerful. Yep, yeah, and you can apply them to any area of life. So yeah, uh, yeah like Jocko. <laughs> Mate, I love that. Number two is I'm, I'm actually going to develop this question a little bit from weeks of past because I think it's important. A skill you'd recommend mastering or an attribute you'd recommend developing that significantly improved your life? Critical thinking. I say that because uh, I've actually haven't heard this term uh, until I went to a a conference not long ago. Um, The balcony view. Jocko talks about it in terms of, uh, he says, detach. So what yeah. I'm saying there is absorb everything and make your own decisions on things. A lot of people have respect for a lot of people out there, whether it be um, famous people they follow on Instagram or something like that. But back yourself and make your own decision. Break things down and think about it for yourself because I just think there's just not enough of that going on at the moment. Have a balcony view, detach yourself and look at what's really going on and make your own mind up on things once you've actually assessed it and critically thought through um, everything before you actually formulate an opinion and start voicing that opinion. Mate, I cannot fucking... I I (laughs) want to put exclamation marks around that. I want people to go back and listen to that. That is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I was speaking to my mates about this recently. I reckon at times I am... What would the word? I am a... Could potentially call it a victim, or I am at the fault of listening to, reading, hearing, digesting so much information or so much outside advice yep. on the way that I should lead my life that it's almost like the way I refer to it as remember being a kid at school or, you know, in some sort of adult test, you're sitting down in front of a question on the paper. And there are so many answers, potential answers floating around your head that you just don't write anything on the paper. 100%. Because you're taking it from everyone else. I think some of the best advice that anyone can ever receive or give in life, if it's backed by true intention and you're a good-natured human, is what you said just there. Critical thinking for yourself and almost listening to the gut at times. Nothing can be... Your gut is is the best thing you can go with. Um, And because then... And, and then if you fail or you fuck up, yep. you own your mistakes. As, as Jocko mm. says, extreme ownership. Because when you listen to someone else, it's too easy to pass the buck. Yep. Oh, well, Steve told me to go this way with my career and it fucked up. Mm. So it's Steve's fault. Yeah, exactly. Not right. I chose to go this way. I own my decisions. Yep. I own my mistakes. 
And then when it pays off, I own my success and my truth. Yeah. It's like, mate, I can't exclaim what you said enough there. <laughs> like such a good point. 100%. Um, number three, the greatest challenge you've faced in your life that's required the most growth and resilience to overcome? Um, forgiveness. Mm. The ability to... Um, it's maybe even be connected to, to that, that second point. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Um, everybody uh, take, makes poor choices. Um, we're all humans. But a lot, I feel like a lot of people hold on to that too much um, and, and think that they're infallible and they, they can't make mistakes as well. Some mistakes can be really, really hard. Um, but uh, forgiveness is... Is, is one of those things that um, I think that I've had to uh, learn a lot about. Um, I Anyone knows me, would know traditionally, um, I, uh, in the early days I had a scorched earth policy um, and I think as I've got older I've matured a lot. Um, I know I've made lots and lots of mistakes um, and... Yeah, I think a lot of the deep friendships that I have now are about forgiveness as well because we all make those mistakes. Um, I love that. So that's just what I, I think that um, that's, yeah, forgive, being able to forgive and, uh, and, and move on. I think that's something that, um, yeah, has helped me a lot. That probably comes via two avenues as well, right? Like forgiveness of others and forgiveness of yourself. I think you're so right there, Yeah. That's that's so true, um, and I think I've touched both on that. You yeah, know, you've, you've got to yeah, you've got to forgive yourself and realise that you're human. And likewise with with people that have done might have done some pretty bad things to you or your, or, or your friends. You know, people do make mistakes, and we're all just humans. Mate, I think if you looked at in in a new age dictionary, or if I could write one, I think underneath the word human, it would be unique beings who fuck up and are not perfect. Um, but are trying to figure it out as they go go through life. Yeah, yeah. You develop your character from making a lot of mistakes, I think. Um, For sure. And that's that's all part of the journey, right? And to be fair, if you haven't made them and if you haven't failed, then you probably haven't pushed yourself far enough. Yeah, and you're probably in denial as well. This, yeah, <laughs> great point. Great point. Um, question number four is a daily ritual or routine. It could be a, a morning thing or an evening thing that sets you up for success in your life right now? Yeah. Um, one of the things on my to-do list, um, uh, Sarah from Coldale, if you're listening, I will get to your yoga class eventually, <laughs> um, is to do yoga. But one of the things that I've found uh, at, at the moment, getting up before the sun rises and, uh, and actually meditating. Mm. Um, I just find... Breathing, meditating, closing everything off, it just sets me up for the day. Um, it's a little bit zen and a little bit out there, but I just find it's, um, it's been pretty helpful for me. Mate, I need to get better at that. You know, I've had so many of my, my guests now, you to add to that list, who have recommended it to me. I guess I've never, I've never, or maybe once or twice I have, but I've never actually set aside time to meditate in the sense of just breathing early, being still and silent and not occupied by anything like I quite often run solo these days where I can because I find that as a sense of meditation yeah 
But I think the ability to sit still is is an art. It is, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's I'm, a real skill. Yep, yeah, and I've struggled with it as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky I live in a beautiful part. Well, you, well, we live in a beautiful yeah. part of the world and I live right on the beach and being able to do this so close to the beach early in the mornings and things like that is uh, is really good. And you know what, it only takes a few minutes. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I find it it's a good start to the day. I'm adding it to the schedule. <laughs> Give it a crack. The fifth and final question, my favourite of the five, is if you could share one message with the world, with everyone listening or watching, and encourage them to act on it, what would that message be? The message would be... Understand the difference between empathy and sympathy. Really understand what empathy means. Empathy doesn't mean feeling sorry for somebody. Empathy means understanding their situation. And I think that comes back to that. Um, just about understanding people. You know, it can be organisations, it can be companies, it can be where you work, it could be a football team, it could be anything, but understanding what people are going through and making a decision based on that, but just not throwing in blindly about sympathy. And there's a big difference. Um, actually, there's a guy called, another podcast, a guy called Marty Moore. Um, he writes a pod, he's written a book called um, No Bullshit Leadership. And he talks about it and he, and he breaks it down very succinctly. You know, a lot of people are too scared to make decisions because they're going to hurt people's feelings, but often it's the best thing that, that could, could, could happen. But... Just understanding, um, a bit more understanding in the world and empathy, knowing the difference between empathy and sympathy, that makes sense. Mate, so beautifully said. I, Steve, I could sit here and the cha- the biggest challenge for me here today as a host was, and I laughed to myself before you got here today because I thought, how do I possibly fit this man's journey, <laughs> or we'll call it a quest because it's open-ended, it, it's yet to continue, into the space of one one and a half hour podcast episode and that is the real challenge because a lot of editing mate <laughs> <laughs> mate you you are so mate I, I take so much inspiration from you you know you describe yourself at the start of this episode as an ordinary man doing extraordinary things you are so humble I beg to differ I think you are an extraordinary human being living a life less ordinary and I just know that so many people who have listened to this or watched this here um, at whatever point in time they get to it, will be inspired by you, will have learnt things from this, as I have, and will want to continue to hear from you in the future. So I am blessed that I get to do that firsthand as, as now a friend and connection, but I'm going to make sure that throughout the course of your journey, I'm sharing your stuff and allowing people to continually connect with you and for all of the avenues and opportunities they have to connect now, I'll make sure that they're in the, the show notes so they can do so. Mate, it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to have you here on the show. And I'm very blessed that we get to continue to develop a friendship. Thank you so much, mate. And I've got to tell you, the, the, the gift is mine because uh, such a young bloke, you're such an inspiration to me as well. So um, yeah, it goes both ways. Thanks so much. Mate, pleasure's <laughs> all mine. Thank you guys for tuning in, listening, watching. Please um, go share this with your friends. It isn't a secret. Whilst there's some secret ops stuff in here, it's not a secret. (laughs) Share this episode around. Get around those five-star ratings and reviews and follow and subscribe. Helps the show grow. Helps us get out to new people. So very thankful for all of you who are here in attendance today. Um, We'll leave you be. (laughs) 